One of the great and significant battles of World War II was fought in a city in Belgium called Bastogne. It was part of a massive operation called the Battle of the Bulge. The reason for its significance was that all roads in the Ardennes Mountains met in the city of Bastogne. As many of you that are students of history know, probably the day that changed the tide of history was June the 6th, 1944. It's known the illustrious D-Day invasion. The war on that day tipped in favor of the Allies, but as a result of that, there was a counteroffensive that the Germans put together that focused all of their forces on the Ardennes Mountains. It was a forest. It was incredibly, terribly difficult terrain. 250,000 German soldiers against 80,000 uh, Allied troops, and they were massively outnumbered. Bastogne was at the heart of the conflict. You may ask yourself the question, well, why was Bastogne such an important and vital piece of real estate? The reason that it was so important, there's a map on the screen as, as best as you can see it, hopefully. In the very middle, you'll see the city of Bastogne. The reason that made it such a strategic city was that seven different highways filtered in seven different directions from its center. It was like an octopus where many roads filtered out of it, and it ultimately was the key to winning the war. Whoever had this city, whoever could control these roads, could funnel all the supplies, could funnel all the machinery, and all the men to the front of the war. The courageous men who fought on this special ground would ultimately determine the fate of the war. Bastogne was a choke point. It was a travel point. It was a hub of sorts. All roads to victory led through this city called Bastogne. In other words, if they were going to win the war, they had to win this battle. It was that critical. I would say here this morning that in the long and storied history of the church, there is a road where many battles have been fought and where ultimately the war will be lost or the war will be won. The history of this long spiritual war is either lost or won on this stretch of road. In World War II, the road and city was called Bastogne. To the Christian, the road is called the Highway of Holiness. The Holiness Highway fans out just like the road that comes out of Bastogne in many different directions. The Highway of Holiness fans out into many different offshoots. Out of the Highway of Holiness flows commitment. And somebody said amen. Out of the Highway of Holiness flows the road of spiritual vitality. Pentecostal power comes out of the Highway of Holiness. I would say that family victory comes out of the highway of holiness. Defensive fortifications that allow us to live this life and to find ourselves safely on that heavenly shore in heaven comes out of the highway of holiness. Long-term durability comes out of the highway of holiness. Spiritual longevity in a person's life comes out of the highway 
of holiness. And I will go one step further because we are a missionary church. And I would say that global missionary revival evangelism conquest even comes out of the highway of holiness. It is still the key battle of the ages that is being waged and it will be fought on this terrain, the highway of holiness. And somebody said, amen. Interestingly, the battle of Bastogne, the battle of the bulge was a common tactical battlefield that was fought. I found it very interesting as I studied it, not just this battle, but this piece of terrain over and over again was a place that was fought throughout the ages. Key battles were consistently and continually fought on this piece of real estate, not just in World War II, but in the preceding generations. The Roman legions themselves who wanted to fight off the Germanic hordes, they did so in this exact location, this exact stretch of land. It held the fate of Europe in its hands. The outcome of this piece of real estate would determine yet another battle in World War II, but it had been a battle that wasn't just fought on that day, but it was a battle that had been fought many, many times before throughout all of history. It is irrefutable this morning, indisputable, and unmistakable in that. And I hope I got some help here this morning. Church, we will fight a common battle as a church and as a people on a common piece of real estate in the spirit. The church has fought this battle many, many times in its long and storied history. This piece of real estate is the piece of real estate that is called uh, holiness. And that battle is the strategic battle of the ages. Every church will live or die on this piece of ground. Every Christian soldier will live or die on this piece of ground. I will say further that the future of the church and all that God wants it to be and desires it to be as an epicenter and a force for revival and global transformation will take place on this battleground called holiness. They had to fight with all of their life. They lost many casualties and comrades and suffered fighting at this crucial hub. They knew how important it was. And they, each and every one of them, every soldier, was willing to lay down their lives and count the cost because they knew how important this specific battle was. Because this battle was going to determine everything, whether they won this battle or whether they lost this battle, would determine whether they would win or whether they would lose the war. And so it is for all of us. And so it is for the church. It's an ancient battle that happens on the same battlegrounds, but uniquely with a different and present group of people. Same grounds, different people. How many times through the centuries has the church fought this battle over and over and over again? Same grounds, different people. Same concepts, different saints. We will win, we will lose, we will succeed, or we will fail. It is that vital. And can we clap our hands unto the Lord? Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. It is 
on this piece of real estate that we will win or lose the battle for our souls as well as the church. The beautiful history of this battle is that there was only one general that could pull it off. The battlefield was so important that it required one of the most bold, one of the most aggressive, and one of the most audacious generals in U.S. history, General George S. Patton. He was a wild dude. And his, his marching orders and his modus operandi was audacity, audacity, audacity. In like manner, I would say here this morning, God put one of his great generals to lead the troops of his mighty church on this mighty battle. The spiritual general leading the fight was none other than the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter. The preacher of Pentecost. Remember Peter? We have a great affection and affinity for Peter as we walk through the scriptures, especially as an apostolic Pentecostal church. We appreciate the apostle Peter. We thank God for the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter was the one that when Jesus was, was asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And many people had many different opinions. It was this apostle, it was this great general of the faith that said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, you're my star disciple, Peter. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he said, Peter, I'm going to do something really special. He said, I've got some keys that I'm going to give you. And the keys that I give you, General Peter, they're, they're going to be powerful keys because they're going to unlock some things. He said, whatever you loose on earth is going to be loose in heaven. He said, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. He said, Peter, because of this revelation and what you've seen and what revelation has given you, he said, you've got some keys that are going to give you the power and the ability to unlock some doors. And I'm so thankful this morning to be a part of an apostolic church. I'm so thankful this morning that in Acts chapter number two, something powerful happened. I'm thankful that in the second chapter of Acts, amen, that promised fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy of Joel, when he said, I'm going to pour out of my spirit in the last days. Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Old men are going to dream dreams, and young men are going to see visions. That in the second chapter of Acts, where the church was born, Amen, Becky. We've been doing Bible study in Acts chapter number two. And we spent about 17 hours this week on Acts chapter two because it's so exciting. Because that's where it happened. And on that day when the Holy Ghost fell and people began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. And the people are bewildered and wondering and trying to figure out what happened. There was somebody, there was a general that stood up and brought clarity to all the confusion. And his name was Peter. And he began to preach about Jesus. He began to preach about the fulfillment of prophecy. He started preaching about all these things. And then after he, he preached about Messiah, coming Messiah, he leveled the boom at them and said, you know that one just a couple weeks weeks back that you crucified on the middle tree he was your lord he was your savior he was your god and the bible says upon the preaching of this general of the faith their hearts were pricked in them and they asked the faithful question the powerful question as a matter of fact i would say the question of the ages and that is now that we know that jesus is messiah now that we know that he has bled and died for us what in the world do we do now? In response to the greatest revelation, what is the greatest response that a person could have in their life to the greatest revelation? The greatest response to the greatest revelation
revelation is that you need to repent and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And Peter, the general of faith, said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And he said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. And I will say this morning that Acts 2.38 still matters. The general of the faith preaches the gospel. And the Bible says, they that gladly receive the word, those that receive the word of the one that had the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it says, they that gladly receive the word were baptized and they were added unto the church about 3,000 souls. Come on, I'm talking about some kind of revival like that. A book of Acts, Acts 2, Holy Ghost, Jesus' name, city transforming kind of revival that thousands of people could make their way to salvation and be baptized in the only saving name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 2 and 38. It's a powerful revelation. It's a beautiful revelation. And I think we ought to clap our hands and thank the Lord for that revelation. Amen. The great general of the faith. God used him to bring that revelation to us. But I've, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And the good news is I, I just have for the church is that there's more than Acts 2.38. And the bad news is that Acts 2.38 isn't enough to save you forever. And you say, what you talking about, Pastor. Because this great general of the faith that preached to us Acts 2 and 38 also said in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 40, he had a concise message of salvation, but he had a deliberate and extended message of people that experience New Testament salvation that they cannot just get saved, but that they would stay saved. Can the church rise to its tiptoes on this Sunday morning and say that it matters not only that we get saved, but it matters that we stay saved? It's not enough to just get in the church. I got to get in the church and I got to stay in the church. It's not enough to just make a decision for the Lord and get baptized and I come out of the waters wet and happy. What really matters is that a year later, five years later, ten years later, am I still walking the walk and talking the talk and living for God? Because I may experience salvation one day, but it's got to be durable. There's got to be longevity to it. He that endureth to the end, the same is going to be saved. I don't want to just get saved. I want to stay saved. And the great general of the faith brought us the message that would not only get us saved, but he brought us the message, Ron, that would keep us saved. Because the Bible says he, he brought to us 2 and 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a pretty quick message. But the Bible says he was a long-winded preacher. My kind of preacher. I think we need more preaching less than less preaching. And you can agree or not agree, but I got the mic this morning. <laughs> Amen. Because the Bible says that Peter, the general of the faith, that great general tells us, and with many other words, did he testify and exhort 
saying what? Save yourselves from this untoward generation. With many other words that he say, save yourself untoward. The, the Greek word is skolios. Crooked, perverse, every which way but loose. With me, this great general of the faith, because he realized that the strategic battle of the ages isn't just going to be for the message of Acts 2.38. There's too much silence about the message of verse number 40. And verse, number, verse 38 will get you in the church. Verse 40 will keep you in the church. God help us. 38 will save you, but 40 will keep you saved. I'm preaching this morning about the twin towers of apostolic triumph and truth. Be saved and stay saved. 38 is propagation, 40 is preservation. 38 is getting saved, 40 is staying saved. 38 is justification, 40 is sanctification. And I would say here this morning that all spiritual traffic flows out of our hub of holiness. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. No wonder the enemy wants the road of holiness blocked in and blown up. No wonder the world, the flesh, and the devil spend so many resources here. Because if the enemy can't keep you from experiencing Acts 2 and 38, he'll let you experience Acts 2 38 without going on to Acts chapter number 2 and 40. Because he knows if, okay, if nothing else, if, if they can get truth uh, but not stay in truth, then he wins the battle in the end. If he can get you in the church, oh, dear Jesus, please help me here this morning. I don't want to make a mess of this here today. But you know what? I've seen so many people come and experience Bible salvation in a powerful, life-changing way. And you know what? But three years later, they're nowhere to be found. There was a day when they were a Pentecostal pogo stick on the front row until the sweat beaded down their face and, and the tears dripped off the edge of their chin. But, but they're like Casper the ghost. You couldn't find them anymore to save their life. They got into the church, but they didn't stay in the church. I guess what I'm preaching here this morning is get in the church and then stay in the church. Do whatever you got to do to stay in the church. That's the highway of holiness. Because if there's a strategic battle that the enemy will knock you off your game, it's in the battle of holiness. It's in the battle of personal commitment and consecration because it's in that place that we build defensive fortifications where the enemy can't destroy me at will, where I can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, where I can endure throughout the ages, where I can find myself 10 years later and 20 years later, and if the Lord tarries 30 years later, still in the church living for God, because I've learned the powerful message of personal sanctification and the hub of holiness out of which all power flows. It is holiness. And I would say the highway of holiness must be guarded because it is the strategic battle of the ages. He asked a question this morning. It's a very general question, and I suppose I am aiming at something, but from your estimation, is the Christian church at large, is the Christian church at large more or less spiritual 
than what it was 50 years ago. Is the Christian church at large, take just a wide gander at the gamut of religion and Christianity in America as we know it today, because I think the statistics will prove this to be true. I think about 78% of Americans call themselves, they put themselves under the label of Christian. If you were to ask them today, are you a Christian? They'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. And yet there is a tremendous disparity between the proclamation of I am a Christian and actually living the Christian life. So, I, I think it's at least worth an observation, a question. So, is the Christian church at large, is it more or less spiritual than what it was 50 years ago? So, the answer would be less. So, I think we need to start asking ourselves some questions. Then, why is that the case? Why is the Christian church less strong than what it was 50 years ago? Well, I'll just, I, I, I'll just, I, I'll just start the volley, okay? I, I'll make the admission. And I will stand here as a spiritual leader and I'll make the admission today. I would say, first of all, that leaders let it go. Leaders that were supposed to be spiritual, they got weak, they got carnal, and then leaders stopped praying, leaders stopped leading in a godly way, leaders stopped challenging people to growth and godliness, and the church got cold when it lost a spirit of holiness. When the church got more worldly than it was godly, pursuing the world more than God, the church went dark. The church went silent. And I would say probably the onus for that lies, first of all, with its spiritual leaders. Prayer got silent and slipped away. Doctrine became unimportant. Lifestyle choices just became a matter of personal preference. And everything just went down. You could just see it spinning its way counterclockwise down the toilet as the church went into another dark age. What I am preaching on this Sunday morning is that this church cannot and this church will not in the name of Jesus go that way. And I am here to challenge us together. We, I want to remind us today, are God's army. We are God's redemptive arm, and we are his redemptive agency in the earth. The hope for the freedom of an unsaved world is about a church that's committed, a church that's consecrated, a church where there's still a move of the Holy Ghost, a church that still has people that love God and live for God and live committed lives before the Lord that are still salt, and they are still the light of the world. The only hope for a lost world is a church that remains committed to her God and stays committed to a lifestyle of holiness before the Lord. I'm here to challenge you this morning. I'm here to ask you the question, what kind of church do you want to be a part of? What kind of church do you want to be? Do you want to be worldly? Do you want to be weak? Do you want to be anemic? Do you want to be half committed? Or do you want to be strong? Do you want to be prayerful? 
Do you want to be dedicated? Do you want to be principled? Do you want to be a place where God's presence is welcome? Do you want to be a place where God is divinely attracted to us? I will tell you here today that there is something that attracts God. There is something that attracts the Lord to my life and your life and ultimately will be to this church. And that is an attitude and a heart of commitment and dedication and consecration to the Lord, a heart of holiness before the Lord is found pleasing to God and it attracts God to our lives and to his church. Amen. So if we're going to talk about it, I think we ought to break it down a little bit. What is holy? What does it mean? Holiness. What, what does that mean? In, in the Greek, the New Testament word for, for holiness is hagios. It is, it is mirrored and, and mimicked off, an, off of an Old Testament principle of holiness as well. The, the Hebrew word is kodesh, and it, it means something that is separated. It means something that is different. It means something that is unique. And what I just want to remind this precious church here this morning is that if you're born again of the water and the spirit, if you've been washed in the blood of the land, I want to remind you of who you are this morning, and that is that you belong to Jesus. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to anything or anybody else. You belong to Jesus. If you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, then you have operating within you a spirit of holiness that connects you to your God. And you're not just like anybody and everybody else, and you never are going to be like anybody and everybody else. I'm not preaching about a spirit of arrogance. I'm not talking about haughtiness. I'm just talking about a reality. And that means this, that when I've been born again, the ownership of my life irrevocably was changed and that I now belong to God. I am sanctified, separated. I am now under his ownership. I am now different. And as I walk with Jesus and as the world becomes increasingly dark and dim and I continue to walk with Jesus, I'm going to be different than the dark world that I live in. I'm going to talk different than the world. I'm going to walk different than the world. I'm going to think different than the world. My hobbies and my entertainment is going to be different than the world because God loves me so much that he put something in my life and he made me distinct. He made me different. I'm not just like this world. I don't follow this world nor its ways. I follow Jesus and I'm marching to the beat of a different drum because I belong to the Lord. belong to the Lord. That's going to make me and you different. And we better get used to it. We better get used to it. We're going to be different. I would go so far as to say that's where our power rests is when we are different. Do you honestly think that a lost world that is careening in darkness and death and despair do you honestly think that a dark world is looking, when it finally is looking for a place for betterment and, and for change in, in their lives, are they going to look for people that are just like them, that are in the same morass and pit that they're in? Are they going to look for that? No, they're not going to look for that. You know what they're going to look for? They're going to look... I feel the Holy Ghost. They're going to look for someone that's different. 
than the mess and the problems of their life. They're going to look for someone that has obviously found solutions for life. And can I say it just like this? The only thing in life that I've found that ever works, and that's Jesus in my life and the power of his gospel and the Holy Ghost is the only thing. My personal life observance as well as pastoring people for decades of time, the only thing that works in people's lives that is eternal is a relationship with God of commitment. And when a person commits to God and comes out of the world and disconnects from all of the mess in their lives and sets themselves on a solid rock foundation that it does for them, Jesus does for them what nothing else in the world can do for them. And he makes them different and he separates Separates them to be his very own. And when he does that, he doesn't want us flirting around with other lovers. Watch what it says in Corinthians 6 and 19. What? He's asking a rhetorical question. 619, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Your body now, when you're born again, becomes the temple of his spirit. It now lives within us, which you have of God. And notice this very, very important biblical fact. And he says this, you are not your own. Can you just look at your neighbor and say that? You're not your own anymore. You're not your own. You're not your own anymore. You don't belong to you. You don't belong, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to, no, you're not. not. Not if you're going to follow Jesus, you're not. Because the ownership, he took all your mess. He took you as you were in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for While we had nothing to offer him, while we were, what would what, we bring to God? God needed me like he needed polio. God needed me like he needed a hole in the head. God didn't need me. I was a mess. And I, 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 was, I, 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 was, I was in the trash bin somewhere. But thankfully, he takes, takes them out of the trash bin and makes them treasure. It's the great redemption, restoration project of the ages is what he does. But when that happens, the ownership of my life had forever changed. You are not your own, he said, for you are bought with a price. When you surrendered your life to him and he washed you in his blood, the ownership of your life at that moment forever changed. You are bought with a price. I have the blood on my life. I'm washed. Yes, he freed me. He forgave me. But now I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to him. And the good news is this owner does a really good job with his, the things that he owns. He does a really good job. That's why most all of you are doing really good when before you weren't doing very good. <laughs> and look at your life now. It's because he's a good owner. He's a good owner-operator, by the way. He's the owner-operator. He's in us, and he does a really good job. He said, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, which are under God's ownership and possession. And so when we talk about this thing called holiness, holiness biblically is an ownership issue. Holiness is an ownership issue. It means that now my life, thank God, is owned by the Lord. And he's a good owner-operator. It now means that I'm different because I, I belong to him. Can I just say this here this morning? Christianity is not a hobby. Not like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, something I do. Christianity is a lifestyle. Christianity is not a club. It's being born into a body. 
And what I'm preaching here this morning is that this understanding impacts my entire view of everything in life, my view of commitment, my view of where is my future, my view of what is my life all about. It is absolutely transformed when I recognize that I belong to God now. My body belongs to God. My mind, we sang the song, holiness is what I long for. What is that? That's a striving in our heart and life to come to that realization that my body belongs to God. My mind, all my stuff belongs to God. Everything that I have comes from him and ultimately will go to him. And And I belong to God. And that's good news for all of us here today. Woo! I was chosen by God. You realize that? So here's the thing. You start talking about holiness. Some people start getting heavy like, oh, no. Uh-oh, watch out. Here we go. It's going to be a holiness message. No, no, not at all. Because, because listen, God chose you. God. G-O-D. J-E-S-U-S. Jesus chose you. And most of us, if you're anything like me, you're like, me? (laughs) You chose me? What do I have to offer God? I didn't have a whole lot to offer God, but a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. But he picked me anyway. That's powerful. I was picked by God. I think every once in a while we need to stop long enough and just be amazed by that facet of our lives all over again. He picked me. He chose me. And I thank God that I belong to the Lord today. I thank God that he loved me. I thank God he received me as his own. I thank God he took me when I was all dirty and messed up in my life. I didn't have a lot to offer him other than sin and mess. He didn't pick me because I was good. He picked me because he loved me and then he made me good. Nobody here's got bragging rights today to say how great I was. God got such a trophy when he got me. No, he didn't. He didn't get any trophy. We know what we were, but he took us the way that we were and he chose us. Thank God for that. And shed his abundant love and truth upon our lives, washed our sins away, and look at where we are now. Amen. 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 In fact, I'll say this. The transformation, this is, this, is why, this, this is why church can't ever be a club. Church can never be a club. It can't just be a place, why you ask where I go to church? No, it has to be a place where we experience a transformation in our lives. That means something happens inside of us that so completely changes our lives. This is not a, a, another business like Walmart that offers Christian products for Christian consumers. You, you come to church, yeah, we got a good sermonette. We got a, you know... I went to a church one time. It was a massive church. It was a church of about 10,000 people. And I went into, it was, the complex was so big, it gave me a complex. And, uh, and you know, it was all said and done. I mean, the, their singing was completely on target. The, the preacher, I mean, uh, he's a tremendous communicator, told stories and all that. I, it was about a quarter of an inch deep by about 17 miles wide. There wasn't a lot there, but he was entertaining. And, and we were there. I was just checking it out. I was just kind of curious how all this stuff operates. And, and uh, I was there with a couple friends of mine. And, and when we left, I, I heard someone that was, had been visiting the church. They, they made this statement. This is what they said. They said, it was almost like not even going to church. 
Because what it was, it was a Christian business that was dispensing Christian products for Christian consumers. Can I tell you, that's not what the church is all about. We're not just offering a product. Because the thing is, oh, God help us. Because when you get the Holy Ghost in your life, it is going to rock your world. You don't add Jesus to your, okay, now, and, I, and, I'm not, and I'm not here to castigate those that are on their journey. I was, I was in uh, Duluth two days ago, and I was in, of course, Barnes & Noble, <laughs> 14 hours later. And I'm standing there, and I walk over to the religious section, and I hear this lady, and she's having, she's having this conversation. She's obviously not a Christian person, but she's like, my, my kids are asking me questions about God. And they're, they're saying, like, you know, why do we say when somebody sneezes, God bless you? And I'm like... The Lord works in the most revolutionary ways. <laughs> Her kids are asking, why do, why do we say God bless you? They, no religion, no Christianity, no nothing. And here's this lady pulling books off the shelf, and she's like, you know, there's that one book. There's, and, 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 and what are we going to do as a church? What are we going to do? Come to our church, and we got a nice Christian. we got a nice program for you. we got a nice program. we got a nice Sunday school. we got, we got really friendly people. And we should have all those things. But at the end of the day, when somebody walks out of this place and they go, oh, the, the sermon was good. And the, if you're here and you're shopping for churches, don't come to this church for that reason. Maybe we're not going to fit what you're looking for. Because that's not what we're about. What I'm saying, the Apostle Peter, the general of our faith, brought Acts 2.38. And when people got baptized, their lives were forever changed. When people got the Holy Ghost, uh, former addicts and abusers and violent people and Roman soldiers and messed up people, their lives were turned around. And what I'm saying is, that's what Jesus does when he chooses us. Uh, and, and all across this congregation are story after story after story after story after story after story of people. You were so down and out, but Jesus Christ saved your soul and he picked you up. And here you are living a good life you got a family, you got a marriage. You have all the things in life that you always wanted and you tried to get, but you could never obtain. But you found it all when you got it in Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Holy Ghost brings transformation. It changes our lives. And fundamentally, that's what scares a lot of people away from church. Do you know that? That's what scares a lot of people away. And you know what? We can't soft pedal this thing. Well, what does God want on my life? Oh, not much. Just everything. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. That's what Jesus said. Jesus preached to the thousands. And you know what? He didn't, he, he didn't wring his hands when thousands walked away because he knew, you give me a couple of committed disciples and I'll turn this world upside down. You give me just a crowd and you don't have much. We get excited about butts on pews, but tell you what, there's more to it than just that. It's about disciples. It's about those that have decided, though none go with me, Jesus, still I will follow. I'm here to follow you. And Lord, it hurts 
sometimes. And Lord, it's hard sometimes. And Lord, there's things in me that contradict this gospel and contradict this Bible. And Lord, either you're going to change or I'm going to change. And Jesus, near as I can see, you're not going to change. I guess what I'm going to have to do is knuckle in here and pray my way through some things and, and, and eat your flesh and drink your blood and die out to some things and, and some prayer and some fasting and some saying yes to some things and no to other things. And all of a sudden, you know what happens to a person that engages that process? Uprise as a disciple. Uprise as a soldier. Uprise as a child of God that nothing and no one will keep them out of the gates of heaven because they've made a decision for God in their life. And that, and that location is called holiness. That location is called holiness. That's what it is. It's dedication. It's consecration. It's commitment to the Lord. Well, we better get to our general. Are we ready? First Peter chapter 1. Peter was a tremendous holiness preacher. You realize that? We see it at the inauguration of the New Testament church in Acts 2, right? What's he preaching? Save yourselves from this untoward generation. His, his last writings are no different than his first declaration on Pentecostal birthday. They don't change. In fact, if anything, they intensify. First and second Peter gives us, you, you, you can't help but as you read these, these, these two writings of Peter, it bleeds through over and over again. And here he is again in chapter 1. He, be, he, he, he opens the salvo and he begins. First Peter chapter 1. In the beginning of his writing, 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. <laughs> be sober. And hope to the end. To the end. To the end. Because folks... Peter is nearing the end of his life. And you know what this great general of the faith is saying? He's thinking about the end. He's lived his whole life in faithfulness of that. But he sees the end is, this coming of his salvation is nearer than when he first believed. He sees the end and it's in sight. And he's trying to encourage the people. He said, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance. (laughs) We could have a little fun here today, and I could tell you to look at your neighbor and say, you were ignorant. You were. We all were. We really didn't fully know what we were doing. We didn't really get it. I mean, we knew it was wrong, but he said, but whatever you do as obedient children, now that you're a child, you're an obedient child. That requires discipline. It's not enough to just be a child of God. I need to be an obedient child of God. (laughs) Some people have kids. And some people have obedient kids. <laughs> you know the kind of kids you don't want to be around? When you leave, you never say it to them. You're smiling like a Christian. Oh, praise the Lord. But when you get in your car, you're saying, that kid's a brat. That kid's a straight-up capital B-R-A-T brat. I wish those parents would get their head screwed on, right? Because that kid's a little terrorist. He is a terrorist. It's one thing to be a kid. It's one thing to be a child. It's one thing to be an obedient child. That's what he's saying. Be an obedient child, not fashioning yourselves. He said, you, you can't get in the church and act like you used to act when you were out of the church. 
That's really good preaching. You can't be in church and act like you used to act when you were out of the church. Or you're a brat. Biblical brat. Unbiblical brat. The former sinister drives that used to be in us, they no longer are going to continue to drive our lives presently when we're in the church. God is going to help us to get over that. Okay, so what's the justification for that? Peter says, 15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, your feigned conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as the Lamb without blemish and without spot. And so he quotes, there's an old, old scripture in Leviticus, in Leviticus 7, uh, 11 and 44. And he quotes out of Leviticus. Here's the, the scripture. Leviticus 11:44. For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing. Go ahead, tell your neighbor, stay away from the creeps. The creeping things, the creeping things. He said, just don't mess with that stuff. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. You're not an Egyptian. We got some endurance here in this service here this morning. You're not an Egyptian. You, God brought you out of Egypt. God brought you out of the world. He brought you out of all that mess. That's what he said. He said, he bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And God writes to his Old Testament church, Israel, and says, you're my people. I want you to be holy. Don't, don't follow all the creeping things, all the creepy things of the world, he said. He said, I pulled you out of all of that. And he said, I want, God told his people, he said, I, this is Old Testament Israel. He said, I want you to be holy, Israel, God says, because I am holy. He said, I want you to be separate from your ungodly culture and society. And God says, because I am holy. Because I am holy. They were to be distinct. His family was to act differently from unbelieving nations. After all, they were his people, weren't they? They were the people of God. They were possessed with his good character. God gave that to them. God gave them the word, and he said, I want you to be different. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, gives three primary motivations, and this is where I'll close my message here this morning. He said there's three primary motivations that are going to get you out of your seat heading onto the highway of holiness. The first, the first one he said was in verse number 16, chapter 1, verse 16. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. You know why we're to be holy, a holy people? Because the God that we serve is a holy God. He is unlike anything else. He is unique. He is powerful. He is beautiful. He is absolute truth. And he said, God said, God said, I'm holy. And because you're my people, God said, I want you to be holy because I am holy. Amen. Verse number 17 is the second rationale. He said, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. 
The second rationale for, for walking on the highway of holiness is God's impartial judgment. Can I just say this? We're covering a lot of ground here this morning, but can I say this? And that is that the reminder to all of us that God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. Furthermore, let me say this. This is a word that we don't use. And again, there's always pendulum shifts in Christianity. And this is one of the big ones. One of the big pendulum shifts in Christianity, which I don't, I'm not obviously opposed to. The shift has moved to God's love and God's kindness and God's mercy and God's grace. And all of those things are true. Amen. But can I tell you, he simultaneously is also a God that is just. He is a God that is righteous. He is a God that is holy. And he is a God that is deserving. And I'm going to say a word you don't hear in the Christian church enough. He is a God that is worthy of our fear. He is worthy of our fear. Before we all get to just thinking, which is what Christianity has really bought into, is that God is just one great big fuzzy teddy bear. He's just Santa Claus. He's a vending machine that, that just gives me all the blessings that I want. I put in a couple quarters and out pops everything that I want out of life. Your best life now. Can I just tell you, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And that's what Peter, the general of the faith, remember? The battle for Bastogne, the one that's trying, he's fighting for holiness. He's fighting for holiness. He said, church, don't forget God's holy character. God told us, you be holy because he's a holy God. Number two, he said, don't forget that we are passing the time in our lives in fear because there is going to be a judgment. I don't think it has to incapacitate us, but every single one of us has got to realize that he's not just my buddy and he's not just my pal. And can I go a little further? He's not the man upstairs. He is almighty God and he will always be that and let God be true and every man a liar. And whether I serve him or not takes nothing away from his austere perfection because he is an awesome God. And because of that, I serve him in holiness and in fear because there is a coming judgment and let me tell you what that produces in your spiritual life that kind of an attitude produces in your spiritual life conscientiousness that kind of a heart in our Christian life makes us sensitive about displeasing the Lord. That kind of spirit makes us aware, like, man, I don't know if I should have said that. Should I have done that? Man, should I listen to that music? Is that pleasing to God? Should I have watched that movie? Was that pleasing to the Lord? Does God like that? Does that represent his nature? Does that represent who he is? God's impartial judgment will lead us into lives of holiness, a recognition of that. I fear the Lord. Some things in my life I'm not going to do, not because of you. I ain't, I ain't scared of you. But I'll tell you what's deep in my heart. I'm scared of him. I got to please him. What all, whatever all y'all do, I still got to please him. All right. And the final thing he says in 18 and 19, I think it's beautiful because the great general of the faith brings it to us in such a beautiful way. 
He says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The cross. The place where my Messiah, my God, he died for me. His blood was shed. The blood washed my sins away. The blood gave me hope. The blood helped me when I was hopeless. The cross, Calvary, the love of God, the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood. I think we need to sing about it a little bit more. I think we need to go back to some of the old hymns. Because you know what it does? It leads us back to holiness. It leads us to holiness. When I remember how good God's been to me, and I think about his tremendous sacrifice, when I think of the pain and the shame and the degradation of Calvary, when I think of what he did for me, it makes me want to live holy. Undivided loyalty to the one that gave so much to me. Not sin, not the world, not, not me and what I want. Because listen, all of us are selfish in our human nature. Come on, somebody. We're all selfish. Yes, we are. And you know what we want? We want what we want. We want what we want. But when I humble myself before the cross and I start thinking about the fact that Jesus loved me when I didn't deserve it, he loved me. He gave so much, he sacrificed. And you know what? He did all that for bad people. Bad people, dirty people, messed up people, mixed up people. People that had no right. You, 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 you got no right to be in this church today other than by the blood of Jesus. It's the only right you got. Only right you got to stand in his presence today. His blood gives you that right. His sacrifice made the way. And so is it too much for me really to turn around and give back to him? Is it too much for me to give back to him my life? Is it too much for me to make some commitments and consecrations? Is it too much for me to make some decisions like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I can't. I can't talk like that. I can't act like that. No, I'm not going there anymore. No, I'm not doing that anymore. Because when I measure that against the sacrifice of the one, oh, Jesus. And furthermore, let me say this. One day... If you live for him, you're going to see him one day. And when you look across the vast expanse of heaven, we're going to be excited to see one another. But when we see him, when we see him, when we see him, my God, I feel the Holy Ghost. Jesus' name. That's holiness. Holiness is loving and obeying God 
and allowing his Holy Spirit to work in you in conjunction with the word of God to bring about a life of obedience to his commandments and his will. It's not a rule book. It's not a list. If the Old Testament taught us anything, it can't be a rule book because guess what? <laughs> rule book never worked. All it did was lead them to Christ. That, that was his schoolmaster. The rule book was just showing them that the only way you're going to pull this thing off is to get so strongly connected to Jesus, strongly connected to his word and his spirit, that all of a sudden the law is written on earthly ta tablets of the heart. And now guess what? It's not external compliance and obedience. And that's, that's not what I'm preaching. In fact, when I announce a subject like holiness, that's where some of your minds go. But you know what? That's not what it is. What it is is the Holy Ghost begins to imprint upon you and the Word of God begins to change and transform you. And all of a sudden, stuff starts falling away. Stuff starts falling away. And you know what? Stuff starts getting added to your life. <laughs> How do I know that? Because a lot of you are here today and you said, I'll never do that. And here you are and you're doing it. And you're loving it. And you know why? Because all these things have come into alignment. And you say living a life of holiness is a privilege and not a burden. I want us to stand this morning and I want us to pray. got a whole bunch more that I could share this morning, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm done. I would have liked to have applied this a whole lot more, but I don't, I don't think it's time for that right now. Because the thing is, if you get holiness in your heart, if you, if you get a desire to please God in your life, there's nothing that you won't do for the God that you serve. Because it brings everything into perfect clarity. It's the why. It's the why. Why don't you do this? Why do you do this? Why don't you go here? Why don't you do this? Let me tell you why. Because if you get the heart of holiness imprinted upon your heart, on the fleshly tables of the heart, you know why I do what I do? It's because I want to please God. I want to please God. That's why I do. That's why this church, this church is different. Straight up, this church is different. You're, you're different. The world calls you weird. God calls you precious. Because what you're saying is, I, I'm not out for the accolades of an ungodly society. Whether they put you and me on the front page of the newspaper and celebrate us does not mean anything. This world being impressed by us means absolutely nothing. What really matters is, is God impressed with my life? If I pleased him, if I made him happy, God help us. Because, friend, if you get that in your heart and in your spirit, there's nothing you won't do. And all of a sudden, now, furthermore, when you get that in your heart, you know what happens when you open this Bible, it begins to unlock truths. And you're like, wow, I never saw that before. Whoa, and that pleases God? I never, whoa. Man, people are all around me telling me that's stupid. That doesn't even matter. That's ignorant. That's dumb. And all of a sudden, but you get a heart of holiness and you open up that Bible and all of a sudden you go, whoa, that was for me. I get it now. And it unlocks the key to holy living. 
When you get it in the heart, everything starts making sense and power comes and strength comes and change comes and stability comes. And here you are a year later and here you are five years later and you're strong in the Lord. I wonder if we could lift our hands to the Lord today because there's a very subtle, beautiful presence of God here today.